a smooth transition. Uh, we want to take just a minute and pray for a few things that have come to uh, my attention. There may be others. Um. All right. This morning we are continuing on in our walk through First uh, Corinthians, and this is really an exciting Sunday because we're in First Corinthians chapter four, fourteen. I wish it was chapter four. <laughs> Because today we get to talk about tongues and prophecy. And I'm just so excited. Uh, I just have to give you a little, a little background on this from my own perspective, where I'm coming from. Uh, I was saved, you know, the, in, well, let, me, let me start by reading actually a little bit from the first part of the chapter. Uh, Paul says, and of course this comes right off the heels of chapter 13 where Paul is talked at great length about love and the importance of love, especially uh, in the context of this Corinthian church that was in turmoil and a lot of the stuff was just out of control. And he says in 14 verse 1, Let love be your highest goal, but also desire the special abilities or gifts that the Spirit gives, especially the gift of prophecy. For if your gift is the ability to speak in tongues, you'll be talking to God but not to people since they won't be able to understand you. You will be speaking by the power of the Spirit, but it will all be mysterious. The one who prophesies is helping others grow in the Lord, encouraging and comforting them. A person who speaks in tongues is strengthened personally in the Lord, but the one who speaks a word of prophecy strengthens the entire church. Uh, Paul starts um, this discussion off the heels of chapter 13, emphasizing the importance of love. And I want to start there as well. Uh, I, I sadly have been in the midst of church wars over this issue. And so, you know, I'm a little gun shy. So I've been shot at. And uh, sadly, when love is not present, this can be an extremely divisive issue. And I've seen denominations, churches, organizations split deeply uh, when love was not president, president, president or present. Both, yeah, uh, and it's not necessary because if we truly are walking in love, this is just not that big a deal. It's not that crucial that we make such a big thing of it. And when we walk and operate in love, uh, we should be able to love people. We may be charismatic. We may be fully in, in, uh, engaged in these gifts. We can love those people who don't walk in that same experience. Vice versa, we may think charismatics are just crazy people, but you know what? We can love them in Christ, and we can walk and share with them together in community. And this should not be a divisive issue. Let me give you a little background where I come from. I, was, I came to Christ and was saved when I was 14 in an extremely fundamentalistic, legalistic church. Uh, extremely non-charismatic. To the farthest extent of the word, okay? Uh, not only did they not believe in the gifts of the Spirit, pretty much they didn't believe in the Holy Spirit at all. Uh, or the gifts, or, you know, it was just way far away. Uh, as I went, uh, grew, graduated from high school, went to Bible college, I moved one step away from there, but still about 10,000 miles away from the other extreme, to a Bible college that also was very non-charismatic, uh, that taught, as many churches do, that the, these gifts had ceased. Um, and so I, I pretty much accepted what they said as 
gospel truth. I didn't actually read the Bible for myself. I didn't have to because my teacher had figured it all out. That's how most of us get our theology right. We don't read the Bible. We just take for face value what our teachers tell us. And uh, so I agreed with that. Well, uh, I got into ministry, got into serving God, um, began studying the Bible on my own, and I was in a camping ministry where from time to time we would have these charismatic groups come, and I discovered that these people actually knew Jesus. It was kind of a revelation for me. And they weren't as crazy as I thought. They tended to be actually quite normal and uh, actually had a very deep burden for people and God's work and ministry. And so I thought, you know, I've got to go back to the Bible and look at this thing again. And so I began to study on my own and discovered really from Scripture that, that this argument that the gifts had, had ceased is not in the Bible. It's just not there. And I came through God's leading and teaching my life to, to become, in, in definition anyway, charismatic. And what I mean by that is I, I would hold that the, all the gifts are in operation in the world today, that God can give the gifts, all of them, as he chooses in this day and age. And there's no evidence or support anywhere in Scripture for these gifts having ceased. So, amen. So I, I, I moved a little bit closer, right? And uh, thankfully, God, and in the spirit of love and grace, I began to work with and alongside and become part of many organizations and ministries and churches that were very charismatic and had very dear friends. Moving here, you know, it's a very mixed community where we have all extremes and all sides, all diversity. Uh, About a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago now, uh, I had the chance to go to Sri Lanka. Some of you know Tommy Cartwright. works with an Assembly of God church in Sri Lanka. Very charismatic. I mean, these people are pretty wound up. Tamil, you know, works mostly with Tamil people. And, um, you know, I'm not quite there yet, but I can go with them. You know, I can go there, I can pray, I can join in what they do. It's really, honestly, not my style, as you probably observed. Uh, They're very loud. Very loud all at the same time. And uh, I don't really get into all that. For me, it's just kind of distracting. But I can join with that. I can be a part of what they do and bless them. And one night, it was the last night of a crusade, we had this outdoor tent set up. People came out of the woodworks. And to their credit, the, the national pastor who leads this is a man of serious prayer. We would spend every day, most of the day, in prayer for these crusades. The people would come to Christ, earnestly seeking God. Good stuff, biblical stuff. Uh, this last night of the crusade, people came. I mean, just hundreds. There were five, six hundred people. They're just packed in this tent. And, you know, Tommy preached a good word, and then, you know, then it kind of breaks loose. Everybody starts praying, and uh, they come by the droves to the front to be prayed for. And uh, every available Christian, you know, stands up and starts praying. So I'm up in the front, getting mobbed by these people. And, of course, I don't speak Tamil, and they don't speak English, but it doesn't matter because half of them are speaking in tongues anyway, so they don't care. And you just pray for them. And so I'm praying for people. I don't know what's wrong with them. I'm just praying God would just bless them, you know. And uh, it's just crazy everywhere. Noisy. Of course, they always got a guy up blasting in the PA as loud as possible. I don't know what. Going off. And people all around are praying. And so I'm praying, trying to keep my sanity. And I'm praying for this guy. First couple people come up. I start praying. And this guy just drops down. Poosh. And I'm going... I don't even believe in this stuff. Okay, I, and I'm going, uh, yeah, a little help here. I think I, think I just killed somebody. Okay? 
it's like, what, what am I supposed to do with this person? Yeah. So there I am, full-blown, all-out, Pentecostal charismatic. Wow, so that's kind of my journey. Um, God's God's always moving us forward. Uh, So with that in mind, I want to look at at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And uh, as I say often, with this many opinions and views and perspectives, I have the opportunity every Sunday to offend one group or another. This morning I'll probably make everybody mad. Okay, that's my goal. Um, We're going to look at this. And actually, the, the good news is, that when you look at this passage that really uh, outlines prophecy in tongues, it really is very straightforward. It is not complicated, and it's not difficult to understand. And so we want to look and take a plain, simple look at what Paul teaches the Corinthians about these gifts. And he says, first of all, that he focuses in, in chapter 14, he's been talking a lot about all the gifts, but in chapter 14 he focuses in on two, prophecy and tongues. And uh, he says, the love be your highest goal. Um, desire the, 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 the gifts, especially these, these, these special gifts, but especially, most of all, the gift of prophecy. And he talks about, through this chapter, and it's a rather long chapter, we're not going to read through the whole thing, but let me just highlight, uh, so we know where we're starting, a clear understanding of these terms, as I believe Paul used them. Now, I will say that in our modern day, a lot of groups and a lot of people have added their own meanings to the, these words that I would say are not necessarily biblical. And I want to really look at how Paul used them in this context and how the Corinthians would have understood these words. Yeah, that's a good starting point. Uh, prophecy and tongues. First of all, what is prophecy? Well, I would say that uh, in its simple, simplest form, simplest definition, it is a message from God bringing forth his word or his message as it applies uniquely to a present situation. That's a very generic and and probably overstated definition. But the the emphasis is that a prophecy is a message from God. Okay, it is a word from God. The prophets in the Old Testament and in the New spoke with authority as one given a message from God. And it's an inspiration, a word that God lays on someone's heart given to the body. Uh, Paul talks about it in chapter 14, verse 6. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, if I should come to you speaking in an unknown language, how would that help you? But if I bring you a revelation or some knowledge or some prophecy or teaching, that will be helpful. So prophecy is in the realm of teaching, of giving the word, of some revelation of word that God has put on our heart. In verse 30 he says, But if someone is prophesying and another person receives a revelation from the Lord, the one who is speaking must stop. So it is simply uh, something that God, a word, a message that God lays on our heart, reveals to us. Maybe about some sin of somebody in the church or some circumstance in the church. Maybe it's a scripture passage that God brings to your heart or mind that you feel God has put there for you to uh, share with the body. Uh, some word of encouragement, some word of teaching. Um, it's content. Okay, it's content, it's, it's, uh, it's word, it's a message. It's clear and concise. Um, 
I believe, you know, in our day, a lot of times people will say, well, God told me. And just because they say that doesn't mean it's a prophetic word or that God necessarily told them that. And a little bit later we'll learn that we need to evaluate those words if they're truly from God, if they truly bear that weight of authority. But in its simplest form, that's what it is. It's just simply some message from God. Preaching can be prophecy. In fact, really, literally, all preaching should be prophetic in that it should be bringing a message from God. If I'm not bringing a message from God, I should just shut up. All right? If God's not moving in it and God's not speaking through it, then you don't want to hear it, right? It's just a waste of time. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, yeah. I, I, Thanks, Walter. Uh, it, but, but it doesn't need to be just preaching. It can be any testimony. It can be people who say, you know, I just really feel God putting the scripture on my heart for this morning. And I've been in services where people have just shared a scripture that powerfully spoke to another person. That kind of thing. Um, it is from God to people. It is a message not from a person, but it ultimately has as its origin, if it's true prophecy, its origin is from God. Okay, so God has moved somebody's heart with that word or that message. Um, and it doesn't necessarily be the preacher. And in Corinth, it was very clear and obvious that many people, a variety of people, uh, men and women, were given words of prophecy and would stand up in, ch- in church or share um, that word with the congregation. Um, in verse 29 to 31, he kind of gives a flavor of what this looked like at the church at Corinth. He says, Let two or three prophesy, and let the others evaluate what is said. But if someone is prophesying, and another person receives a revelation from the Lord, the one who is speaking must stop. In this way, all who prophesy will all who prophesy will have a turn to speak one after the other, so that everyone will learn and be encouraged. Okay, so that's kind of simply how it looked. People would, uh, in their in their meetings, uh, would stand up, and Paul wanted it to be done orderly. Two or three people would stand up, share a word of testimony. Uh, its purpose, as he outlines in this chapter, is that it would bring strength and encouragement and comfort. Or like he says in the verse we just read, that people would learn something. Okay, it should be educational, not just entertaining. And I've read, you know, you go on the internet, click on prophecy, you can get some really interesting stuff um, that doesn't fit that description. Very interesting, very out there, uh, but not necessarily strengthening, encouraging, or comforting. And Paul says it should be doing those things. He says in verse 3, but one who prophesies strengthens others. Uh, The word really is builds them up, encourages them, and comforts them. A person who speaks in tongues is strengthened personally, but one who speaks a word of prophecy strengthens the entire church. So it's a word that edifies, that builds up, that brings instruction. Um, It helps people grow in the word and in the knowledge of Christ. It deepens their walk with Christ. It gives them significant insight into their own life and how God's word applies in perhaps a certain situation that they are struggling with at that moment. It brings encouragement. Um, It helps them focus on their need to trust God, to seek hope in Him, to uh, be encouraged that God is working in the midst of their difficult circumstances. Uh, He says it gives comfort. Uh, It brings us to hope. It brings us to the place that 
God has not forgotten his promises. And he reminds us that, yes, my, my word is true, my promises are true. And sometimes he may give us a word that's a confirmation of his promise to us. And so it gives comfort, it gives hope, it gives encouragement. Um, another characteristic, characteristic of prophecy is that it fully engages the mind. Uh, he compares, and we'll get this later, he compares tongues and, and uh, prophecy. And in verse 18 he says this, uh, he says, but all of you are prophesying. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 18. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than any of you, but in a church meeting I would rather speak five understandable words to help others than 10,000 words in an unknown language. Well, why does he say that? Well, in the context he says, because I want to engage people's minds. I want them to be engaged mentally. It's at the level of clear thoughts and ideas that a prophecy operates. Um, it uses words and language that we can understand with our mind, that we can wrap our thoughts around. It's ideas, okay? That's prophecy as, as contrasted with tongues. Um, interestingly, he says that for unbelievers, a prophetic word can have a very powerful impact on convicting them of sin. And in verse 24, he says this, If all of you are prophesying, and unbelievers or people who don't understand these things come into your meeting, they will be convicted of sin and judged by what you say. As they listen, their secret thoughts will be exposed, and they will fall to their knees and worship God, declaring, God is truly here among you. Great picture of the power that this gift can have when it's in operation in a church. When God's truth is upheld, when God's truth is spoken, especially when it's spoken as the Holy Spirit prompts someone with a word for that moment, it can be a powerful tool to bring conviction upon the unbelievers. Uh, he says that it's given primarily for believers, but he said when, when God's word is put forth in a way that people can wrap their minds around, it brings conviction. And they fall under the light of God's holiness and truth, and it convicts them of sin in their life. And they uh, fall to their knees in repentance. It's, it's hoped and prayed. And they recognize God is in this place because he is speaking his word. Um, it parallels what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between the spirit and soul, between joint and marrow. It exposes our inmost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. Uh, this gift is important in the church, and Paul says, simply, I would prefer you to emphasize and pursue this gift of prophecy, because God's word is a great, in fact, probably the single greatest agent of change in our life. It does convict us of sin. It teaches us how to change and grow. It illuminates for us God's will and purpose. And so, in whatever form it comes, whether through preaching or through testimonies or through uh, people sharing, uh, this is a powerful tool of God as his word goes forth. Um, so that's prophecy. Tongues. Uh, as Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians, what are tongues? Well, uh, again, these are kind of over, overly simplified definitions, but um, I would... I, 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 define it as any intelligible speech unknown to the speaker and or the audience. Okay, and I'll explain that in a second, and or the audience. 
it's, it's words we don't know what it means. Okay? Uh, any language, uh, known or unknown, that we are speaking in, where we don't know what it means. You know, I can speak in Thai poorly. It wouldn't be a tongue because I know what I'm saying. Okay, even though the average Thai person may not know what I'm saying, <laughs> I know what I'm trying to say. Okay? Now, there's two examples of, really two illustrations of tongues being used in Scripture. One is in Acts and one, the other is here in Corinthians. Uh, and I, I would argue, and some would be, debate this, but I would argue that they're not the same. Uh, in Acts, the, the language that's used is clearly a language that's understood and used in, in everyday life. The speaker didn't understand it when the apostles spoke in their message. They didn't realize that they were speaking in, or didn't know the language they were using, but those hearing understood it. It was clearly, uh, and, and there's a list in Acts of the many different languages that, that, that they understood it in. Uh, that would be one use of the word, and one uh, understanding of it. In, in Corinth, uh, it probably is not the same. The context and setting in Corinth is, is much different. And we know that as it was used in Corinth, it wasn't a known language that anybody there spoke. Now, it may have been a language somewhere in the world, but it wasn't one that any of them knew. So in Corinth, both the speaker and the listener were going, ah, I don't get it. Okay? It was nonsense language. Now, there's debate. Was it a real language? Was it you know, some Swahili tribe in Africa language? Was it some heavenly language. We don't really know. Uh, probably because of the setting in Corinth, they practiced in their pagan temples a form of ecstatic speech. And the word that's used glass, uh, for tongues, glossolalia, uh, can be used for both of these words, both real human language as well as what we call ecstatic speech. Uh, in their pagan worship practices, in their temples, they practiced this ecstatic speech and the prophets and the prophetesses would get all worked up and kind of in a froth and a foaming at the mouth and eating rabies shots and they would go up in these very ecstatic chants, okay? Uh, and very likely that was the model that the Corinthians were using. They probably were not so much influenced by Pentecost as they were by their own culture where this was an everyday part of their religious practice and experiences. Interesting, some of the Greek words that uh, Paul uses in this passage kind of point to that uh, by the way he, he uses them. That is speech that would be what we would call a prayer language. Okay, a personal prayer language that, uh, that may not be an, an identifiable language on this earth. Um, Paul talks about the need for interpretation. And some people say, well, if it's interpreted, it must be a real human language. But I don't think that's necessarily what Paul means by when he talks about interpreting. The word that's used there can mean to interpret, literally like to translate, but can also mean to explain something. For example, when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus with his disciples after the resurrection, it says that he translated to them all that had transpired. He explained it to them. And so it doesn't mean if, uh, if somebody stands up to give an interpretation of a tongue that they translate word for word exactly what was said as if it was a used human language. Uh, it probably has more the idea of, of explaining the heart of it. Um, and we'll talk about, uh, more about that as we move on. 
Um, so tongues is, interestingly, as he says in verse 2, prophecy is from God to man. Tongues, he says, is from man to God. And throughout this passage, he talks about tongues really in terms of prayer. In 14 verse 2, he says, For if, for if your gift is the ability to speak in tongues, you will be talking to God, not people. Okay, it's, it's expressed to God. In verses 14 and 15, he says, If I pray in tongues, my spirit is praying. Okay, there again, he's using the word praying, but I don't understand what I'm saying. What, what then shall we do? I will pray in the Spirit, and I will also pray with words I understand. I will sing in the Spirit, and I will sing in words I understand. So as Paul's using the word here, it, it suggests that he's talking about a language that's primarily directed towards God, not towards the audience. Okay, it's, it's an expression and a language, a moving of the heart in prayer and in worship to God. Um, as I said, I believe it, as Paul used it here, it's, it's a private prayer language. Um, it connects in a special way with the spiritual man, and we'll talk about that in a minute, um, deep within the recesses of our heart and life. We pour forth our heart with words that are beyond our uttering. As Paul wrote in Romans, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. So it's a person who has this burden, this this deep uh, moving in their heart, and they pour forth with this speech uh, their heart. Um, Paul also says that it it has personal benefit for those who use it, those gifted with the ability. In verse 4 he says, uh, a person who speaks in tongues is strengthened personally in the Lord. Okay, Paul says that this has <clears throat> benefit for the one who uses it. They are strengthened personally in the Lord. So whatever this is, it has a benefit for us personally in our own personal walk with Christ. In verse 5 he says, I wish... All of you have the gift of speaking in tongues. But even more, I wish you had the ability to prophesy. Paul wishes this gift for every believer. Not that every believer would have it, but he says it's a good thing. And I would hope that all of you would have the gift of tongues. Some of you, you're going, wait a minute. This is getting too close and scary. I'm going to take that verse out of my Bible. Uh, Paul goes on to say in verse 18, Paul says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Paul used this in his own personal life. Paul practiced on a regular basis this gift uh, for his own personal growth and benefit. And uh, Paul wouldn't say these things. He wouldn't wouldn't wish it on everybody. He wouldn't have used it himself if it didn't have benefit for his own walk and spiritual life. Okay? Now... In this room, there's going to be two groups. Those who have used this gift and, and understand what I'm talking about. Another group are going, okay, this is just weird. Okay, I don't know what they're talking about. I don't want to know. Well, let me just back up a little bit and say this. Um, we are to worship God in spirit and in truth. And I really believe that we are very complex creatures created in God's image. And there are many parts to us and we could, have, we could have a great debate this morning about how many parts. We won't go there. But we're very multifaceted beings. 
And uh, for us to worship God in spirit and truth, Jesus says and invites us to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, all the parts of our being. Uh, Whether or not we choose to pursue speaking in tongues or not, let me say this. We, We broadly are divided into two halves or two parts, the truth side and the spirit side. The truth side operates with words and ideas. It's very cognitive, very intellectual, very brain-oriented. Okay, this, right now what we're doing is very truth-sided. All right, because I'm <coughs> speaking to you to, in words that I hope are intelligible. Some of you think I'm already speaking in tongues because <laughs> you just don't get it. But uh, I'm communicating truth uh, from Scripture, words, ideas. But that's only one half of our spiritual uh, existence. Another half is the spirit side. And the spirit side is not the same. And for too many of us, we have turned all of the Christian life into that which is academic and intellectual. And the reality is there is a spiritual side. There is a side of us that is deep, much deeper than we realize. And uh, is in many ways strange and mysterious and goes beyond just what's academic and intellectual. And some of us need to get in touch with our spiritual side. Okay, not our feminine side. Maybe we need to get in touch with that as well. But our spiritual side. Okay? That part of us that flows very deep. That place in our life where it says God's Spirit bears witness with our spirit. Okay? And that's not just intellectual or in the mind. In fact, Paul talks about it in verses 15 and 16. He says, What shall I do? I will, I will do both. I will pray. Well, let me back up. Verse 14. For if I pray in tongues, my spirit is praying, but I don't understand what I'm saying. What should we do then? I will do both. I will pray in the spirit, and I will pray in words I understand. I will operate in both spheres. Um, and I will sing in the Spirit. And I will sing in words I understand. Oh, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Uh, I will give thanks. I, I will praise you in the Spirit. Um, for if I praise, you, praise God only in the Spirit, how can those who don't understand you praise God along with? How can they join in giving thanks when they don't understand what they are saying? Uh, Paul says, I want to use both. I want to operate in both spheres of my existence. Um, So how do we develop a deeper spiritual side? Well, tongues would be one way to do this. And for those who speak in tongues, for those who practice this gift, they give testimony that it helps them get in touch with the spiritual side of their life. It does something in them. And it's interesting, recently uh, there's been some psychologists, Christian psychologists in England who have done research studies on those who speak in tongues and its effect on their psyche. And they've discovered that for many of these people they find a great deal of emotional and spiritual healing in their life. And I don't want to believe it just because it's been proven scientifically, but the reality is that Paul recognized its benefit and he encouraged its use because... It helps us getting in touch with both spheres of our operation. Now, some of you may say, oh, okay, that may be true, but I just can't go there. Well, there are other ways to develop your spiritual side. Uh, I believe meditation is a good way to do that. 
Um, part of our problem is we think too much. We have been trained and taught in our Western world to think about everything, to analyze everything, to dissect everything, to deal with everything intellectually, analytically, academically. And quite honestly, sometimes to benefit our spiritual life, we need to stop that. It's good sometimes, but we need to balance it out with uh, the move of the Spirit in our life that may be beyond uh, that realm. And meditation is a good way to do that. Stopping our brain from chewing everything to death and letting God's Word sink into our spirit, into our soul. Um, Also, um, deep reflection, extended fasting and prayer in solitude. Um, Training ourselves to walk more in the spirit. Um, What is spirit? It's more than just mental process, although it can involve and should involve thinking. It's more than emotion. Because some people think they want to have this experience where they conjure up these emotions and and uh, spirit is more than emotion. And uh, you can be connected very deeply and spiritually and be quite unaffected emotionally. I was really confused about this for a long time. I thought every time I was spiritual I should like cry or something. It's not true. Or laugh. Uh, it's not emotion. It's deeper than that. Now it can impact our emotions. It can impact our mind. But spirit is spirit. And it's really beyond our physical body. Um, so we need to develop that side of our life however we choose to do that. Uh, and we need our worship to be uh, capturing both sides of that. And so we spend time singing, and we sing a lot, and it's hoped that singing is engaging our mind. Thankfully we sing songs with real words we understand, which is a good thing. But there should be something also that happens to us spiritually as God speaks to our heart and moves in our spirit as we worship Him in song. Okay, so that's the two long explanations of prophecy and and tongues as I believe uh, Paul used them in this passage. Um, He goes on and he says that basically uh, the short and simple version is that tongues are not for commercial use. I have that on my computer. It says windows, not for commercial use. For private use only, whatever that means. Um, And Paul says that for a number of reasons that tongues are really designed primarily for private use. Um, In in verses 13 and 27, he gives one exception to that. He says, uh, if you do speak in a tongue in public, there must be an interpreter. In verse 13, he says, so anyone who has the gift of speaking in tongues should also pray for the gift of interpretation in order to tell people plainly what has been said. And then he says in verse 27, pretty much the same thing. No more... The two or three should speak in an unknown language. They must speak one at a time, and someone must be ready to interpret what they are saying. If there is no one present who can interpret, they must be silent in your church meeting and speak in tongues to God privately. Okay, important words there. And my assembly of God friends who I love very much, you know, don't practice this very well. Uh, And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, but that's the exception. Paul says, uh, if there's ever a tongue, if tongues are ever used publicly, it must be with a clear explanation of what the message is. Interesting, what that does is that turns it really from tongues back into prophecy. Because now it becomes a clear message from God that everybody can understand. Right? 
And so we've really moved it out of just unknown random language to clear, concise words that people understand. And Paul gives a, a number of reasons for that. Well, let, me, let me give you two other things. Uh, only if there's an interpretation. And in general, uh, in general, I believe if Paul is teaching its use here, it should be used in private. It should be, in general, something for our own personal benefit. And the reason is simply that, as Paul says, its benefit for us is personal. It's not given for the benefit of the body. It's primarily given as a personal blessing to help us and strengthen us within our own self. Um, so why does he give these restrictions, and what are, what are the restrictions? Um, well, Paul operates with this one simple principle that governs this. And it's a good rule for church in a lot of areas, not just in speaking in tongues. And the rule is simply this, that everything you do in church should be helpful. <laughs> okay? That everything you do in church should mean something to everybody. All right? And so there's probably a lot of things in church we, we, we may want to cut out or change because they're not meaningful for people. But in this context, Paul says, uh, the reality is that when everybody is speaking in tongues all at the same time and there's no interpretation and people are just going off in these languages nobody knows, he says over and over repeatedly in this passage, it doesn't help people. And he said, for that reason, I would prefer prophecy, which has benefit for every person in attendance. Notice what he says on the helpful side, first of all. Paul says, we need to do everything that is to bring benefit for the strengthening of the body. Uh, Let me read through these real quick. Verses 2 through 6. For if you have the ability to speak in tongues, you will be talking only to God, since the people won't be able to understand you. You will be speaking by the power of the Spirit... But it will be all mysterious. But the one who prophesies strengthens and encourages and comforts them. It has benefit. It helps them. A person who speaks in tongues is strengthened personally, but the one who speaks a word of prophecy strengthens the entire church. It's for the benefit of the entire church. He says, I wish you could all speak in tongues, but even more, I wish you could prophesy. Why? Because prophecy is greater than speaking tongues, Because unless someone interprets what you are saying, the whole church is not strengthened. Dear brothers and sisters, if I should come to you speaking in an unknown language, how would that help you? If I bring you a revelation or some special knowledge or prophecy or teaching, that will be helpful. Paul says everything we do in church should be beneficial to the entire body. It should be building up by bringing knowledge, truth, God's word, and instruction. Uh, Verse 12, he says this, So the same is true for you. Since you are so eager to have all these spiritual gifts, seek those that will strengthen the whole church. In verse 26, he says, Well, my brothers and sisters, let's summarize. When you meet together, one will sing, another will teach, another will tell some special revelation God has given. One will speak in tongues and another will interpret what is said. But everything that is done must strengthen all of you. Okay, everything we do in church, he says it over and over, everything we do should be building up everybody who's present. Um, The flip side, he has a lot of things to say about what is not helpful. He says, include things, do things that are helpful, remove and stop doing things that are not helpful. And this is what he says about the not helpful side. Verses 7 through 11. 
He says, even a lifeless instrument like the flute or the harp or the guitar uh, must play the notes clearly or no one will recognize the melody. In other words, you know, if I don't know how to play the guitar and I get up and just start banging on it, and I say, okay, let's sing this song, you're going to go, I don't know that song. Okay, I didn't learn that song. Okay, but if I play a certain melody and put chords together in the right way, you'll go right away, oh, this is, you know, God of wonders. And you're ready to sing. Okay? It has meaning because it's clear. And it's something we know and understand. And that's helpful, he says. He says, if the bugler doesn't sound a clear call, how will the soldiers know they are being called to battle? This is important. If you're a soldier, okay, they, would, they would command the troops with a, with a bugle. And there were basic symbols, uh, signals. And one signal meant go forward and kill. The other signal meant run or die. You know? And uh, it was real important that the bugler was real clear on which signal he was using. You know? Because when it's time to run or die, you better get it right. Okay? So it's important that the bugler is clear about the signal and communicates clearly what is intended. Because otherwise, what? It's not helpful. That's what he's saying. Um, it's the same for you. If you speak to people in words they don't understand, how will they know what you were saying? You might as well be talking to the air. Okay? He's really emphasizing it's not helpful. You're just, you're just talking to the air, and it's not helping anybody. There are many different languages in the world, and every language has meaning. But if I don't understand a language... I will be a foreigner to the one who speaks it, and the one who speaks it will be a foreigner to me. Paul uses there the word barbarian. And uh, that was a very derogatory word to the Greeks. The Greeks were very proud of their language. They believed their language was basically sent from the gods, and they thought that the babbling of the barbarians was just blah, 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 blah. And that's where the word barbarian comes from. They're just people who go blah, 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 blah. Right? And uh, he said... So when Paul says you'll just be a foreigner to me, he's not a compliment, okay? He's saying, you're just barbarians, all right? I think he's saying it's not helpful. Um, Verse 16, For if you praise God only in the Spirit, how can those who don't understand you praise God along with you? God may have put some great thing in your heart to praise God, to worship Him, to lift up His name, some attribute that God has revealed to you that you just are excited about. But if you don't communicate that in words that are clear, they can't praise with you. They can't join in thanksgiving. They can't come along with you and rejoice as you are because it doesn't mean anything. How can they join you in giving thanks when they don't understand what you are saying? You will be giving thanks very well, but it won't strengthen the people who hear you. Um, So that's Paul's first principle. Everything we do in church should be to the benefit and encouragement and blessing of all. And so he says, tongues does not accomplish that when it's given uh, in chaos with everybody talking at one time and without interpretation. He says it's of no benefit to the church as a whole. Okay, plain and simple. Then he gives another point. He says, not only, not only do we have to Make sure it benefits the whole body. But we also must consider how it benefits unbelievers. He says this in verse 20, uh, starting in verse 20. He says, 
and he quotes a scripture from Isaiah. He says, It is written in the scriptures, I will speak to my own peoples through unknown languages and through the lips of foreigners. But even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So you see that speaking in tongues is a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for the benefit of believers, not unbelievers. Even so, if unbelievers or people who don't understand these things come into your meeting and hear everyone talking in an unknown language, they will think you are all crazy. And that's the Bible. The Bible is saying that, not me. Okay? Paul says, Paul says, you know, if you're just speaking in tongues and going crazy and being crazy and chaotic, you know, when people come in from outside, it scares them. Okay? Whether they're Christian or not Christian, if they're not used to it, it scares them. I've been there. All right? And I've been in very Pentecostal churches where they were coming up and putting their hands on me and saying, spinning in my face and telling me stuff in other languages. And, you know, it's a little scary. Okay? Now, I know what they're doing, and so I can kind of relax and say, you know, God, this is great. But for people who are unbelievers, what does it communicate to them? Paul says, they just think you're nuts. Okay? They don't get it. Okay? It does not bring them closer to Christ. All right? Now, amazingly, God is good in His grace, and many people get saved in charismatic churches who do this, because God's good. But Paul says clearly, it's not because you were speaking in tongues. At some point, somewhere, somebody had to give a clear word of the gospel that brought them to Christ. So let's focus on that. Um, Okay. Enough of that. Let me just summarize. Paul says basically two things in this passage. Everything we do should strengthen the body. Everything we do should take into consideration bringing unbelievers closer to Christ. Okay? Doing things that draw them to Christ. By the way, in Corinth, uh, because this ecstatic speech was practiced in pagan temples, uh, the way this wording is in the Greek, it kind of implies that when they come into your presence, they think you're mad just like the idol worshippers in the temples. That's really what Paul's saying. He says, you're not distinguishing yourself from those who do the same thing in pagan idol worship. Okay, so you're not, you're not making Christ distinctive. Okay, but when you preach a prophetic word, you preach the truth, you show God's knowledge of their sin and His holiness, you make the gospel distinctive and powerful. Okay, so then Paul closes with some very basic, simple rules for doing church. Um, and he says in verse 26, Well, my brothers and sisters, let me summarize what I'm saying. When you meet together, one will sing a song, another will teach, another will tell some special revelation God has given them. One will speak in an unknown language, while another will interpret what is being said. But everything that is done must be useful to all and build them up in the Lord. Uh, First of all, let me talk a little bit about small church, big church. In this verse, Paul changes his words. Up to this passage, up to this point, he's been using the word ecclesia, and um, I wouldn't want to push this too far, but let me make an ex- a suggestion. It is very likely that in Corinth, they met both in large church settings and in small house churches. Certainly, we know that was true in Acts in Jerusalem. They met in the temple day by day. Five, six thousand people would show up at the temple where the apostles would preach. But then it says they would go to their homes and they would uh, take communion together, they would worship together, they would fellowship. 
it seems very clear that this is a model for how the early church operated. Big church and little church. And in Paul's use of words in this passage, he highlights it could, could easily apply to fit that. In the first section, he's talking about big church. In verse 26, he uses a word that really would imply a small house church. Um, you know, which is better? Uh, there are a lot of people who are proponents of big church. Some are, you know, we've got to have house churches. I believe that both are, are part of God's plan and are necessary. Uh, and as we look at this instruction in verse 26, a lot of what he talks about here doesn't work in a big church. If you have a church of three or 400 or 1,000 people, it just doesn't work. Uh, and what Paul's talking about here is that part of our, our experience in the body of Christ is to be as participants. Okay, now this morning if we all took a turn participating and there's 200 of us, it could take a while, right? Uh, I really believe that Paul had in mind that a lot of this would operate in a house church. Uh, big churches are important. We can worship in a way in a large setting that's very difficult in a small group. You know, if you're in a small home group, 12 people, and uh, none of you can sing, and nobody can play the guitar, and you know, it's just hard to really do the kind of things we can do on Sunday morning with drums and pianos and guitars and voices and everybody lifting their, their voices together. There's a cool energy that happens when lots of people are praising God together that's missing in a small church, in a small house church. Um, in, a, in, a, in a big setting, uh, you know, you can have specialized ministry. Uh, I know a lot of people think that, you know, a preacher works on Sunday only uh, and that, you know, how hard can it be to preach? You stand up, you talk about the Bible for a few minutes. You know, the reality is that to, to preach, well, you have to spend a lot of time studying the Bible. I read lots of books. I read commentaries. I read it in the Greek, which is a very slow, painful process, even slower than reading in Thai for me. Um, to have a person set apart full-time for the teaching of the Word is a good thing. And I invest time in that. Uh, in a small church, most likely there's not going to be somebody in every house church that can dedicate that kind of time and energy to the study and teaching of the Word. So in a big church, we can do that. We can set aside those who are gifted in teaching to devote their time and attention to that. It's harder to do that in a small home church. But there are benefits in a small church that are important. And Paul says if somebody brings a song, somebody brings a testimony, a word of revelation, a prophecy, a tongue, an interpretation. That can happen in a great and unique way in a home church, in a small group that can't happen in a big church. For that reason, we strongly encourage people here to be involved, be involved at both levels. To be a part of the fellowship together here on Sunday morning, but we strongly encourage you to be involved in some kind of small group fellowship where it's a ladies' Bible study or Bible study fellowship or community Bible study. I always get those confused. Community Bible study or uh, a cell group or a home group. Okay, that you are involved at the level where you can participate, where you can give a word of testimony and encouragement, uh, where if it is appropriate and there are people who can interpret, you can give a tongue and somebody can interpret that. Um, so that's the first rule. Uh, I think it needs to happen at both of those levels. Secondly, he says, 
everything should be done for the benefit of everyone. And we've talked about that. He says it over and over and over again in the passage. If you don't remember anything, remember this. Church should benefit everyone. Young and old, rich and poor, male and female, uh, married and single. And i got to work at that. Sometimes I kind of leave groups out, and I don't mean to do that. Okay, high school students are our most important people here, and I need to make sure I connect with them. Right? Right. <laughs> okay. Um, Paul says things must be in order and under control. Uh, he says uh, no more than two or three should speak in an unknown language and they must speak one at a time. Someone must be ready to interpret what they are saying. Likewise, two or, let two or three prophesy and others evaluate what is said. If someone is prophesying and another person receives a revelation from the Lord, the one who is speaking must stop. In this way, all who prophesy will have a turn one after the other, so that everyone will learn and, and be encouraged. Remember that people who prophesy are in control of their spirit and can wait their turn. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the churches. Um, it should be done in order. It should not look like chaos. Now I know my charismatic friends all say, yeah, but you can't control the Holy Spirit. You know, when the Holy Spirit breaks loose, you just, you can't stop it. It's a train wreck. You know, you just better watch out because the Holy Spirit, and, you know, I, I, don't, I don't agree with it, for one, because Paul says, God is not a God of disorder, but of order. And here's the deal. You know, you get this picture that God the Father is this kind of conservative, you know, Father who's in control, and the Holy Spirit is like this out-of-control teenager. You know, he just loves going around like wreaking havoc in churches, you know, and just going in and blowing around and people are just going crazy. And like God's going, oh man, my son, I guess this Holy Spirit, I can't control it. Okay, it's not that way, okay? God is a God of control. It's the Father, the Son, of the Holy Spirit. He is a God of order and peace, okay? And if it's not orderly and it's chaos and it's people going crazy, you know, uh, the Holy Spirit does not have full control of that situation. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit's not in it. Okay, the Holy Spirit may be in it, but uh, we are given the responsibility to keep it under control and in order. All right? And honestly, in all our charismatic churches, we've got to work on this one. You know, they've got the gift, they've got the Holy Spirit, they're using it, it's wonderful, but they're not using it biblically. Okay? It's clear, plain, and simple. Paul could not state it in simpler terms. It's got to be orderly. It's got to be under control. Okay, it's just that simple. Uh, there's no, there's no like weird, weird translations of the words here. Okay, he just says it plain and simple. Just be in control. Now, uh, the flip side is there is room for spontaneity. Okay, and there's room for this. There, we must allow room for the freedom of the spirit to move and operate within certain boundaries. And, you know, it's, it's a constant balance, keeping that balance, where we give the spirit freedom move to move and operate, where we don't control it to the point of killing it. You know, where we have freedom and we allow the spirit to direct outside of our plans. Not that we don't have plans, but that we don't get so locked into our plans that the Holy Spirit, you know, could never get through Fort Knox because it's so governed and controlled. So we've got to have balance. Honestly, in our context here at CCF, this is a difficult one for me personally and for us as elders 
because we have so many people who come in new week by week. There are Sundays when 30% to 40% of the people here are people we have never met who are new. And uh, controlling it and that kind of, and the reality is, in that 30 to 40%, there's crazy people. There's nutcases, okay? Um, and there's people, we know, we know, we've been told there are people who are floating around for a lot of the Thai church and other churches trying to stir up trouble. And so we have a responsibility to kind of control that and keep out those who would come in to just stir things up, to bring division, to bring chaos. Okay, so we have to figure out how to control that. And there's more we could do to be more spontaneous. And we talked about that. And we want to allow the Spirit to move freely in our service, be it in a way that's ordered. Um, He talks about the need for... that it be under the direction of, of godly authority and leadership. He says, you know, people can give tongues, they can give prophecy, but we need to evaluate what they say. The leaders of the church or the leaders of a small group are responsible to evaluate it. Uh, he talks here about, and we don't have time to go into this, about women being silent. Clearly the context here is in, is in the context of tongues and the evaluation of tongues and prophecy. And I believe, and I'm not going to go into it all, and you you may disagree, but I really believe what he's talking about here is that women are not allowed to to be elders who are governing over the interpretation of this use of gifts. Okay, that's what I, that's my interpretation of it. What I believe he's not saying is that women are not allowed to stand up and speak, prophesy, pray, because in chapter 11, he already endorsed that. He already said, if women stand up and pray or prophesy, they should do it with their head covered. Okay, he gives guidelines for that. Uh, we, we need to leave room for women to use their spiritual gifts. Uh, certainly in a small home group, as a, a church. When you meet in a small group, it is the church in, in microcosm. Would we have women not participate? Of course not. We give them room and freedom to share all of their gifts. But it needs to be under godly, uh, God-ordained leadership. Lastly, final, final word. He says, So, dear brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Be sure that everything is done properly and in order. Uh, Paul brings great balance to this issue. He says, don't forbid it. Don't teach that it's no longer in operation. Definitely don't teach against it but exercise and use it in ways that are under the clear biblical direction. At CCF, we have a policy that we encourage people and allow and permit people to pray in tongues as part of worship, as long as they do it in a way that's private. Uh, I was at a Prophets Keepers event, you know, very charismatic, many years ago. It was a pastor's pastor's conference, 40,000 guys there. And this one guy has to get up on the very highest balcony of this huge auditorium and at the top of his lungs pray out in tongues like all the time you know well it's just distracting you know it's just distracting Uh, we encourage the use of of praying in tongues we encourage you to do that as long as it's not screaming it out in a way that's going to be offensive or a problem for the person people around you who are also trying to worship and who want to join together um we, we encourage, uh, and I would encourage you to seek uh, to cultivate the spiritual side of your life. 
If you're one who's far too academic, you know, who your Christian faith is far too much locked in the doctrines, which are good, but far too weak in the spiritual side, balance that out. Likewise, if you're one who's way up on the spiritual side, and uh, you know, Paul's criticism is that when you get over there, you turn your brain off and you leave it at the door. It's a bad thing. Okay, make sure you take your brain with you. It's important. right? Uh, we need to use our mind and use our spirit. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for the clear and simple teaching on this subject. And Lord, we, we confess, first of all, that uh, far too often this has been unnecessarily a source of great division and pain and dis- destruction in the church because we uh, have not operated in a spirit of love. We have not operated uh, honestly uh, handling the word of truth. We have come with our own agendas and wanting to, in pride and arrogance, uh, promote our side to the damage of the other side, making them look foolish or stupid or somehow unspiritual. And Lord, we pray first of all that you would forgive us where we have been, uh, where we've been proud, uh, where we have not acted in love and graciousness and generosity towards our brothers who see and and understand and practice these things differently than we do. Father, help us first and foremost to operate in love and to recognize that this is not that big a deal and it's certainly not something that should bring division. Uh, Lord, help us to live together with patience for each other and even where these gifts may not be operated, may may not be operating uh, fully according to what Paul laid out here, that we would be patient and we would understand that, uh, that you can use these things and that you can work in ways that we don't understand and we don't need to be judgmental. Uh, we don't need to be critical. We need to be open to your spirit. And help us, Father, to, um, to really develop fully all of the spiritual resources you've given to us so that we would be whole creatures Uh, fully transformed in every part of our being, heart and soul and mind and spirit and body, coming under the full authority of your word and your Holy Spirit. And we thank you that you have poured out your spirit in our hearts and lives. And we pray that your spirit would uh, manifest his presence through the operation of spiritual gifts in our life that it would be a witness and that the body of Christ would be strengthened and encouraged and built up stronger to your glory. We we ask and we just pray this all in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Shall we all stand?
Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. 